Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at a few of the ways that enormous corporate, personal, and family wealth is being hidden around the world, most prominently in the United States. Clips today are from On the Media, Fresh Air, Planet Money, The Brian Lehrer Show, This Is Hell, The Tom Hartman Program, and Pitchfork Economics. years ago, we spoke about the last huge global reporting project that you directed, the Panama Papers. This week, ICIJ launched the Pandora Papers in partnership with, what, around 150 media partners worldwide? And both of these projects involved in unprecedented collaboration among journalists, and both revealed how massive amounts of money are secretly moved through offshore accounts. So, uh, can you compare this project, Pandora, to the Panama Papers? Well, the Panama Papers was based on one offshore service provider in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. This is much more global. It actually involves 14 different service providers, so 14 different law firms in multiple jurisdictions around the world. And the names are bigger, 35 current and former world leaders, more than 330 politicians or elected officials. And and we're being very conservative in the numbers that we are publishing. We're pretty confident that you've almost got twice as many politicians in there that we're coming out with. Well, stick with the Panama Papers for a moment longer. Did it affect legal changes that reflected how shady a lot of these financial dealings were? I mean, were you satisfied that the Panama Papers made a big enough impact? Yeah, well, the impact was massive. I mean, you had the resignation of three world leaders in the end. I think there were 79 different inquiries in 79 different countries afterwards. There were multiple changes to the law. Governments around the world recovered $1.4 billion in taxes. But what's interesting is that five years later, we're now finding that a lot of those changes that we were promised haven't had any real impact in what is really an artificial construct, this offshore world where people can go and play by different rules. The biggest revelation here is the hypocrisy that we're seeing from these world leaders, but you're also seeing the hypocrisy of the US. The US has acted as a sheriff in the world on this. They've required the Swiss bank accounts to be closed. They've required American citizens to declare all of their offshore holdings. It has pushed other countries to implement new laws to stop this happening. But what we're seeing with the Pandora Papers is that the US itself has become one of the biggest, if not the biggest, tax haven in the world. And in particular places like South Dakota, where bad actors, people that have had misconduct charges against him, you know, sometimes politicians from other countries, are now using trusts in South Dakota to hide their money. The ICIJ observed in its story on the Pandora Papers that in the popular imagination, we think of the system as a far-flung cluster of palm-shaded islands, but the offshore money machine operates in every corner of the planet, and the key players involve elite institutions, multinational banks, law firms, and accounting practices headquartered in the U.S. and Europe. You mentioned South Dakota. We have places like Delaware, where uh, secrecy in finances seems to be its byword. What sort of banks and law firms and accounting firms are 
key players in this? Every household name that you can think of, every bank on the high street, every major accounting firm that comes to mind is involved in this. We have revealed the secrets of 14 of these offshore law firms, but they are really the small players. They're the middlemen because the clients are coming from London. They're coming from Russia. We're looking at the looting of Africa. I mean, it's really very global. You know, one of the biggest findings here is that the people that could be doing something about this and the countries like the US that could be doing something about this are actually benefiting from it. So it's probably goes some way to explaining why after five years after the Panama Papers happened, we're really just seeing another level of sophistication. We're not actually seeing any real change. You've said that investigative reporting is all about finding patterns, not about finding something once, but over and over again. You were dealing with nearly 12 million confidential files, hundreds of reporters. How did people know what to look for, what to find, what to share? We basically have a system that allows us to ingest millions of documents and make those documents available, all of the documents available to all of the reporters who are on the project. So they can go into our system, it's all password protected, and then they can search. Most reporters would start typing in the leaders of their country. We, in fact, did find some leaders like Donald Trump. There were a lot of documents to do with the Trump Corporation because one of the firms that we had was a Panamanian firm, and it was the the law firm that the Trump Corporation used in Panama. Obviously, we were quite excited about that at the beginning, but there really wasn't anything in there. It was it was quite dull material. But again, it's by way of example. You start off looking for what you want to find, and then you realize you've got to let the documents talk to you. You've got to follow what the documents have, not what you went in there hoping to find. It's like dropping somebody on a on a planet and saying, just let the planet show you where to go. I mean, it was planet-sized quantities of documents. I can understand throwing spaghetti at the wall. You plug in a world leader's name into the search engine and, and hope that that person pops up. But how do you let the documents talk to you? By by collaborating. We have invented almost this new way of working as investigative reporters. And traditionally, we are lone wolves and we don't share information. When you're trying to tackle 12 million documents, and to give you a sense of that, like we only counted one document, whereas in fact, some of the documents ran to thousands of pages. So again, mm -hmm. you're talking about nearly 100 million actual or more than 100 million mm -hmm. actual pages. You could never possibly read them all and understand them. You had to collaborate with your fellow reporters. And that's what we do at ICIJ. We bring teams of reporters from around the world together. You know, as far as you're concerned, we just don't need offshore accounts. They don't serve any purpose except to provide secrecy and tax evasion. There is simply one product for sale here, and that is secrecy. Because we've now been doing these stories for almost a decade, we can see no real reason for any of this world to exist. We're seeing very clearly in the Pandora Papers that the people that could be fixing this are the ones that are benefiting. So there's been no incentive mm -hmm. for them to do it. Ah, yes. You've observed that the minute reporters come and question practices, the practices are merely changed, but the corruption that they support remains. 
Look, I learned this a long time ago as a reporter when I was investigating police corruption. And every time you reveal something new, we found basically that the, the corruption just became more sophisticated. That's what we're observing again in the offshore world. Every time we reveal something like this, the next time we come back to it, it, they've just got more careful. And in fact, there were some really hilarious moments for the reporters investigating this because we were able mm-hmm. to see what these firms were doing after we'd published the Panama Papers. We saw the clients moving to new firms. We saw the clients asking, whatever you do, please, you've got to keep my identity secret. We don't want another Panama Papers to happen. And of course, you know, to be able to read that was, was quite amusing. Tell us more about the benefits of offshoring. Okay, so the the benefits include uh, hiding wealth or income and moving it to jurisdictions where there is a much lower tax rate. And that's why these places are called tax havens. If you're in a country, say in Europe, that that where there is very high tax rates, 40-50% of your income or something, you could set up accounts offshore, they call it, and hide some of that wealth and pay, you know, a fraction of that tax rate in the British Virgin Islands or something. But there are many other reasons for moving money into offshore accounts. Escaping accountability, escaping notice, hiding money from creditors, hiding money from a spouse or family members you don't want to get their hands on it. There are criminal enterprises that take advantage of offshore laws and hide money so that their ill-gotten gains are not discovered. Politicians can use offshore accounts, and if they're engaged in corruption and getting kickbacks, they will move that money into places where they hope they don't get caught. And without a leak, without disclosures like what we've seen in Pandora Papers, that generally works. So who are the losers when wealthy people and when world leaders shelter their money offshore? When you think about it broadly, Terry, I think the real answer is everybody who's not wealthy, everybody who's not taking advantage of this system. Um, And I don't think that's an exaggeration. If wealthy individuals are paying less in taxes because they are moving money into offshore accounts in ways that ordinary people can't, that means the tax burden in the United States or any other country is greater on those who are paying their fair share. It also hurts everyday people in other ways. Um, makes it harder for law enforcement agencies to track down money, whether it's from ransomware attacks or from drug trafficking or other categories of crime. And it also makes it really difficult to hold politicians accountable in some cases. If we don't know uh, and we can't get to the offshore accounts where politicians can park money, that makes it harder for voters to have confidence in their elected officials. And, um, you know, in, in the, the lead story for, for the Washington Post on the Pandora Papers, I quoted a, a former FBI agent who was in part of the Mueller investigation who said that, you know, this is a, it's really a cancer on, on, on societies in a very broad way. It makes the gap between the rich and everybody else even bigger when you take into account that a lot of people who are rich have money we don't even know about that we're not even calculating in that gap. Yeah, and you know, there are by almost by definition there are no 
completely accurate estimates of how much money is hidden offshore, but the smartest estimates seem to be well into the trillions of dollars. And you're right, it really contributes to the the wealth disparities that are an increasing problem in the United States and other Western countries. Anna told me about this one service that is really popular called Nominee Services. And she says, you know, just think if you don't want an official record of you being the owner of your company, we can help you with that with Nominee Services. If you choose this service, you can nominate us to be the directors of your company and also shareholders of your company. And in all public documents where the director's name appears, it will be our name. Wait, you would be the directors and shareholders of our company? You, you can choose this service. It's um, a service that you paid for. It's only a service that we offer. If you don't want your name to appear on any company's document, you can choose us to be nominee directors or shareholders. But if I did that, then it, it looks like the company is run by you guys, by the names on the documents. Nobody knows that I'm involved in the company. Yeah, that is the idea. Absolute confidentiality. This blew my mind. You can hire a board of directors to be the public face of your company. And it's not just Anna who offers this service. No, everyone we talk to, this is clearly a nice little moneymaker, although not a huge one. They make like 600 bucks or something to be your board of directors, to be your public-facing shareholders. And then they sign with you a totally private, invisible power of attorney. So they are the public face, but you run the company, although no one needs to know that you run the company. And it clearly was a popular feature, which is crazy when you think about, like, you know, we saw Dozens and dozens. We assume there are thousands of these companies helping people set up companies, which makes you think when you do the math that the Caribbean islands, the Channel Islands, all these offshore havens must be filled with people who are the boards of directors of thousands and thousands of companies out there that they know nothing about, have never met the people involved, have no actual activity with that company. Yeah, when I asked... Now, we had our little experiment with a few companies, but we found this guy, Jason Sharman. He's a professor at Griffith University in Australia who sort of did what we did wholesale. He wanted to find out in a statistically significant way how the rules are being followed. So he applied to have corporations incorporated all over the world. And he had a very similar experience to us, although I have to say with one shocking difference. Originally, I did about 50 approaches. Um, and in 17 of those cases, the providers were happy to sell me a, a company without any identity documents at all, um, which is in clear violation of the international rules. No passport, no ID number, nothing. No, no, no passport, no ID number, no driver's license, um, nothing at all. So really, they had no idea who I was at all. He did say that most countries did require ID to register a company. Except he said there was this one country that stood out as the most willing in all the world to allow people to open companies with no documentation whatsoever. So what is that most permissive, the most secret loving country in the world? The United States. So in fact, the standards of the U.S. were, say, even lower than those in Somalia. 
it's easier to be totally anonymous as a business owner in the United States than anywhere else? The easiest place in the world to register a business anonymously is definitely the United States. The four sort of most lax states um, were particularly um, Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, and Oregon. At first, Jason Sherman looked at his data and thought, this must be wrong. What's, um, I must have made some mistake in the way I'm going about this. But then he tried again. He got students to do it dozens and dozens of times. I think by the end, he's done it over a thousand times in the U.S. and around the world, asking, hey, I'd like to set up an offshore company and I don't want to show you any identification. And again, we found that it found that places like um, the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands and Jersey and, the, and one of the Channel Islands um, were very, very strict. And they People would email back and say, look, we'll sell you a company, but you must send us a scanned, notarized copy of the picture page of your passport so we can keep it on file so we know who you are. Um, but in the United States, the answer was, sure, this should take you about 10 minutes. Um, just fill, you know, fill in the details of the company you want on the website, um, transfer the money, and we'll send you the company today. I think it would be interesting if you tried to set up a company and compare how many documents they ask for compared to how many the people in Belize ask for. Thank you for calling Delaware to Corp. Hi, I wanted to talk to someone about registering a company in Delaware. So obviously we had to take Jason up on his challenge. Yes, I called a couple places that register companies in the U.S. And I reached one guy who talked to me, but he wouldn't let me record. But our conversation was pretty brief. So Adam, you and I can basically sum it up right here. It went something like this. Hello, I'd like to set up a company in the U.S. I would recommend a Nevada or a Wyoming company. Nevada is $599. Wyoming is $529. Or you could go with Delaware. That's $519. Delaware it is. What documents do you need? We'd need the name of the company. We'd need the name of the manager and the address where you want the documents sent. What about identification? We don't need any identification. We just need you to give us the name of the company, give us a name for the manager, and where do you want the documents sent? And that was pretty much it, Adam. We are now the proud owners here at Planet Money of Delahoo. Oh, man. Love these cute names. That one was Caitlin Kenny. And I have to say, setting up Delahoo, it only took one day. It was three emails. And it would have been just one email, except I had some extra questions, such as, is this really all you need? Answer, Yes. So another part of the Russia story that you investigated was how some oligarchs are hiding their money. And um, some of those oligarchs uh, have names that will be familiar to many of our listeners through their relationship to members of Trump's inner circle, oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska, the aluminum magnate. Um, and I'm sure some of these names are very familiar to you because you investigated the connections between Trump and Russia for your book, The Apprentice. So was, was, was this some, some of the like oligarch greatest hits for you? <laughs> yeah. I, it, was, it was a question that I really wanted to look at once I, once I knew I was going to be part of this project. I mean, of course, you're going to look to see uh, what, how many Russian oligarchs are in these documents. We know from prior investigations of this kind that Russian, uh, wealthy Russian individuals use offshore accounts 
a lot. They turn up a lot in prior leaks, including the Panama Papers. So I think that you know, at the Post, we weren't the only ones who were looking for, for these kinds of names in these files. The U.S. sanctioned some of the oligarchs, and you were able to see through the Pandora Papers if these sanctions were effective. What did you learn? Yeah, I think so. Uh, that was like one of the qu- fundamental questions that I thought would be interesting to kind of take on in this project. If the oligarchs are in these documents and, and we're looking and we get names of individuals who've been sanctioned by the United States, what happens? What happens in those cases? Um, because it's, it's become increasingly important as a sort of public policy tool for the United States or foreign policy tool, um, we have sanctioned, the United States has sanctioned Russians over and over and over again over the past decade for um, alleged malign behavior by the Kremlin from the annexation of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine to assassination plots against Russian dissidents to interference in American elections. So we're trying to use sanctions to punish Russia for this behavior. Is it working? And the answer is kind of yes and no. Um, the documents show us that these sanctions are hitting their marks, that they are hitting their targets, and you can see the reactions. You can see the losses, the disruption, um, and even sometimes measures of panic that set in once those sanctions kick in. But when you step back and you and you look at the bigger picture, um, it's hard to make the case, I think, that sanctions are are having that much impact on Russia behavior. So here are all these cases where Russian individuals are being penalized financially, but Russia interfered as accused of interfering in the 2020 election, just like it did in 2016. Uh, this past year was accused of um, poisoning a prominent dissident and trying to kill him. Uh, it's not, you know, they're not backing away from the behavior that these sanctions are meant to deter. Oh, let's not forget about the, the major hack of U.S. federal agencies and, and businesses. Solar winds, yes. Yeah. So the, the hacks, the ransomware attacks, if, if anything, are seem to be occurring even more frequently. So why are the oligarchs hiding their money? My impression is, in Russia, if you're an oligarch who's tight with Putin... You can do whatever you want. So why do they need to hide their money in secret offshore places? Well, I think that your question almost answers itself in some ways. So if you're an oligarch and you're tight with Putin and you can do whatever you want, what happens when you're no longer tight with Putin? What happens when Putin is no longer in power? Um, So perhaps one of the reasons that Russian oligarchs move so much money into these offshore systems is to protect it, is to put it in a safe place where they and they alone can get to it, and the state can't try to get it back. Um, and it doesn't, they're protected no matter what happens politically in Russia. Um, and, you know, there are, there's a couple other reasons too. And, and, and Russian business leaders will sometimes even talk about this. I mean, that the interest in moving money into safer jurisdictions moving money into places offshore, whether it's the British Virgin Islands or in Singapore, so that it's not only out of Russia, but perhaps even 
beyond the reach of Western financial institutions, because if you're a Russian oligarch, one of the other risks of doing business is that you might be sanctioned because of your close ties with the Russian president. Paul Manafort, who was um, Trump's campaign manager for a while, um, was investigated by Robert Mueller and uh, um, convicted. He was sheltering money offshore, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. And he was he was connected to some of the Russian oligarchs, too. Including Deripaska, most prominently Deripaska. And, right, exactly, the Manafort investigation and charges against Manafort were largely charges of money laundering and of hiding uh, illegally gained um, assets. Here's the thing about standing up to fascism. The worst that can happen is that you spend some energy saying and doing things to make the world a better place, and those efforts end up being unnecessary. On the other hand, the worst-case scenario of failing to stop fascism is fascism. So, not good. Well, the Refuse Fascism podcast is going to be on the right side of history, no matter which way things turn. Every week, host Sam Goldman, along with great guests, names the threat unabashedly, dissects it, and connects a deep analysis of what fascism is with the organizing methods and action we need to stop it. They mix it up by getting deep in the weeds on topics like the reinvigorated anti-choice movement and proposed bans on accurate information about our country's racist past and present being taught in schools, but then also pull back and get the big-picture perspective, asking questions about the legacy of the so-called War on Terror and the usefulness of historical analogy. Check it out and subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice, or go to refusefascism.org to get connected, sign up for emails, and more. Can we discuss some basics first? Like there's an article, uh, well, in your G Zero Media site article, it says 55% of America's biggest companies paid no federal corporate income taxes during the last fiscal year. What are some of those companies, if you're able to name names, and how much money are the current tax laws costing the federal government in potential revenue? Yeah, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, and some of these are very large companies indeed. I mean, Apple, Amazon, for example. Um, and, you know, on any given year, it's a different number of companies, and some it's because of primary offshoring, some it's because they're taking, you know, sort of losses in one year, or they're taking gains in another, or they're pushing it around. I mean, everyone's doing everything they can with a very complicated both national and international tax code uh, to reduce what they have to pay. And as you know, there's an enormous, I mean, an unprecedented amount of spending that is coming down the pike this year, already $2 trillion in relief and stimulus at the beginning of the year, another expected $3 trillion in infrastructure, jobs, and other benefits over 10 years. But at the end of this year, we've never seen anything like that. A big piece of that infrastructure proposal is intended to be uh, paid for by raising taxes on corporations. And that's why this has become such a big issue right now. And how does this happen? How does it happen, meaning how does it get passed? No, um, we'll get to that. And whether it can get passed and whether it can get passed by enough countries to make it meaningful. But how does it happen that companies um, that are American companies 
can locate offshore and pay the taxes of the other country. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said, how does it happen that, uh, you know, someone can leave New York City and go to Florida and end up paying like virtually no local tax or state tax um, and the uh, and New York loses that rate? It's because we don't have global government. And so, as you mentioned, I mean, Biden mentioned the Bahamas and the Caymans. He did not mention Ireland because that's actually a significant country. But Ireland is the same thing. The Netherlands as well. You have a number of countries around the world that in wanting to attract um, capital and wanting to attract the jobs around that, and these are relatively small places usually, and they're pretty wealthy, um, they're willing to bring their tax rates to close to zero um, or to have individual negotiations with companies in the case of the Netherlands to get sweetheart deals for them that allow them to avoid paying significant taxes in their home country. And, uh, you know, if you are a CEO and you have the ability to improve uh, profits for your, sh- your shareholders, you would argue that it is your fiduciary responsibility to pay as little tax as possible. And you'll remember, of course, Brian, that when Donald Trump was running for office back in 2016, he said that he was smart because he paid virtually no taxes. Why? Because he was using the American tax code as any red-blooded capitalist would to try to ensure that he could uh, legally pay as little as humanly possible. Every corporation out there will do that. You mentioned the Netherlands. Let's drill down on that example a little more because I think it's interesting. The article on your site says the Netherlands has attracted the likes of Google, Nike, Ikea, and others by letting them negotiate tax rates. So so what does that actually mean? How does a company negotiate a tax rate? And also, I don't think Nike lists itself as a Dutch sneaker company, does it? <laughs> no, just do it as global, but meant to be seen <laughs> as American. Um, but when I look, it's, it's kind of like you'll remember when Amazon was talking about having their second headquarters in a city in either the United States or even potentially Canada. And they were going around and they were saying, hey, This is, you know, we're a huge company, one of the biggest in the world. We bring a lot of talent. We're going to bring a lot of money, but we don't want to pay any taxes. So what kind of a deal are you going to cut us if you want us to base ourselves there? And and New York was very close to a deal. And many, including Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez, for example, were, were pretty agitated. Um, that they were getting such massive benefits uh, to come and develop Long Island City. Well, um, you know, the same thing is true for the Netherlands on the global stage, that they are looking to work with big corporations that are, you know, have high levels of skill sets uh, and they're willing to charge them massively less tax um, on the basis of what they're willing to bring to the Netherlands. So it's it is very much um, a question of can what kind of a deal can you strike with this individual government? I mentioned Janet Yellen is a leader on this as Treasury Secretary. Here's a clip of her the other day talking about why this might not just be in the interest of the United States. We're working with G20 nations to agree to a global minimum corporate tax rate that can stop the race to the bottom. Together, we can use a global minimum tax to make sure the global economy thrives based on a more level playing field in the taxation of multinational corporations and spurs innovation, growth, and prosperity. So Janet Yellen the other day, and let me put a little more of an international cast on it for our listeners, and then Ian, you can help fill this out. It's not 
like they're just paying those taxes to other countries at lower rates, and the U.S. is the only one that loses. Your article says big European nations have been frustrated with American behemoths like Starbucks, Amazon, and Google that flood their markets yet pay nothing back to their governments. And there are countries, including France, Germany, and the U.K., that have wanted something like a global minimum tax. So explain this and how the U.S. and European interests converge here or don't. They definitely converge. And I, I think it's a big deal that Janet Yellen and the Biden administration have built enough trust to get the Germans and the French within the EU to specifically support this policy proposal putting pressure on Ireland and the offshore centers to go along with it. Now, you know there are a lot of big trade problems between the United States and Europe, and one of the biggest has been this idea of a digital services tax that the Europeans have been hell-bent on levying against all digital companies, but as you know, the biggest ones overwhelmingly are in the United States. That would be a big problem if it happened. We would get into an escalatory trade fight with the Europeans and we'd be increasing tariffs on all sorts of European manufactured goods, foodstuffs, and what have you. Nobody really wants that. They've been trying to find a way around it. This is that mechanism. If we end up with a, a coordinated global minimum corporate tax driven by the Americans and the European Union, you will end up having that linked with progress on a global framework for digital services tax in the next couple of months. And this is this is coming relatively soon. We're talking about right before the upcoming G20 finance minister meeting in July. And, and I, I think that of, I mean, there are a lot of places where Biden has said the United States is back because they've joined things that the Americans left under Trump, like the Paris Climate Accord or the World Health Organization and the rest are trying to do the Iranian nuclear deal again. But that that's not moving the ball. This is actually new U.S.-led multilateral coordination that would matter. It would build trust. It would strengthen alliances. And it would ultimately raise more revenue for the major countries uh, in the alliance. I think it's actually a pretty big deal. Um, and before we take some phone calls, and interestingly, a lot of people are calling in on this, let's look at an exception to that because your article cites Ireland – as one European country that's resisting the idea of a global corporate minimum tax because they have one of the lowest tax rates in Europe. So tell us about some of how Ireland in particular has used tax rates in their economy and the impact inside and outside that country. Well, of course, it's become a massive financial center. Uh, for example, there are a lot of big uh, you know, banks and institutional investors that have been willing to set up in Ireland because their tax uh, revenues are lower. We've seen this with Apple as well. We've seen it with a number of tech companies. Real estate has taken off as a consequence in Ireland. It's a country that's done exceptionally well uh, and been able to attract an awful lot of talent because the corporate base is so low. And again, you said it at the beginning of the segment, Brian, it's a race to the bottom. And when that happens, it's the opposite of, you know, company companies and countries coming together to create long-term sustainable public goods. When there is no governance and it's every company for itself, every country for itself, uh, you end up with much less revenue that you can provide um, to, to workers, to the middle class for benefits, and it squeezes the big companies.
want to share some of the data that you found. Uh, right, that for the 27 families that were on both the Forbes 400 list in 1983 and the Forbes billion dollar dynasties list in 2020, their combined assets have grown by 1,007% over those 37 years. This is a sturdy average annual growth rate of 6.7% per year. This growth has hardly wavered through the years. The combined assets of these 27 families grew 99% over just the most recent 11 years from 2009 to 2020. This is an average annual growth rate of 6.5%, almost exactly in line with their nearly 40-year average. In contrast, median family wealth for the typical family in the United States increased by just 93% in inflation-adjusted dollars between 1989 and 2019, the most recent year for which data is available, for an average growth rate of just 1.8%, again, compared to the 6.5%, which is nearly the 40-year average for the wealthiest. So is this unique historically to the past 40 years? Because that lines up with the beginning of Reaganism, Thatcherism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call the change in tax policy and deprioritization of social services that began in the early 80s. So is this a relatively new situation historically? And if so, what does it real reveal to you about changes that have happened in the past 40 years? Well, it is new in the last, if you look over the last century, there was a period of dynastic wealth after the Industrial Revolution. So let's say you know, 1880 to 1915 or so before the First World War, there was a very similar pattern. And that's where the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Mellons and some of these, you know, kind of late um, uh, 19th century dynastic fortunes emerged at that time. But then, you know, 1915, 1916, we start an income tax, we have an inheritance tax, we have a Great Depression, we have two world wars. And we have essentially uh, six or seven decades of relative equality, uh, where you didn't see these growing dynastic fortunes. You didn't see, you know, huge concentrations of wealth emerging. And so you're right. The starting in the late '70s, early '80s, the Reaganomics, but even even prior to that, we started to see these this pulling apart. So, yeah, essentially what you described is these dynastically wealthy families saw their wealth grow 10 times the rate of ordinary families. And by the way, those ordinary families still include a lot of wealthy families. So, you know, compared to income for most people, uh, these these folks are taking off on a rocket launcher. I mean, the number of households that have zero or negative wealth is almost one out of five households now. Um, so that the, these trends are a reflection, Chuck, as you describe, of this 40 years of pulling apart that we've been living through. So the report states that only four of the top 20 wealth dynasties are new to the list since 1983. And between 2015 and 2020, the only family to see its rank decline significantly was the opioid-pushing Sackler family, which fell from from number 16 to number 30, thanks in large part to a number of high-profile legal settlements by their family-owned corporation, Purdue Pharma. So it's been the same families for 40 years, and it took record-setting litigation over millions of addictions and deaths to drop one of those families from number 15 to number 30. What does the Sackler family court decision that finds them, it finds them, but does not hold them accountable, what does that say to you about our entrenched dynastic family wealth in the United States? Well, I would say that it's entrenched, <laughs> that it's persistent, 
that it's uh, it's it's very hard to sort of meaningfully break up those powerful dynasties once they form, because they you know this wealth is power, and they deploy that power to protect their wealth, and uh, you know at the expense of the rest of us, at the expense of equality of opportunity for the rest of us, um, and yeah, think about that the Sacklers whose wealth you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it has come from the mass suffering of so many and to, to, and even still, they don't accept responsibility for that. And they continue to be uh, multi-billionaires, you know, their, their children and grandchildren will continue to be incredibly wealthy wealth that came from the opioid epidemic. And, you know, as you point out, uh, as we were talking about earlier, uh, people are billionaires are making a fortune off of the pandemic as well. So it seems like they're constantly making fortunes off crises. We know that we are already living within climate change, but climate change is going to worsen and worsen. So are billionaires right now set up to make a fortune again off of yet another crisis? Well, you know, it's not surprising to see... Um some of the wealthiest dynastically wealthy families in the country buying land, huge amounts of land, buying water, water rights, um, purchasing property in different parts of the world, you know, whether it's uh, New Zealand or the Rocky Mountains or uh, Canadian provinces where there's, you know, abundant natural resources. Uh, you know, dynastic families think multi-generational. They have, they can afford to, um, and they think they're spotting these, these disruptions, these trends, and they're thinking not just how do we make money off of them, but how do we uh, survive and, and flourish while everyone else is literally treading water. Um, so it's not surprising to see that some of these families are positioning themselves to take advantage of the next disruption. Tell me about South Dakota. Why South Dakota? Well, South Dakota uh, made a decision in the 1980s that it was going to kind of uh, change its laws to attract the trust industry. Um, So, you know, wealthy representatives of some super wealthy families went to the governor of South Dakota and said, hey, if you uh, change this law that makes trusts have to dissolve after a certain period of time, we'll move all our money to South Dakota. You want to define a and trust real way, quickly here? Yeah, a trust is kind of like a ownership uh, uh, entity. It's just a way that wealth and assets can be held. But So it's, it's kind of like your money bin. <laughs> it's your money bin. It's a, it's a weird form in that it... Um, you know, it's not like someone has a trust, they have to register it, or it's like a contract almost, you know, mm-hmm. you and I form a contract. So there's usually somebody who puts the money in the trust, there's somebody who's supposed to receive the money, and then there's somebody who's the trustee who oversees it. What these wealth defense industry people have done is they've kind of distorted and morphed the structure so that it puts the wealth into kind of limbo. Like, who owns it? Who, you know, can this be taxed? Can can that person, uh, you know, who who ripped off their customers, will they, how do we get the money back? You know, well, these trusts are, are designed to be impervious. So it's just an ownership system. It's complicated. 
But actually, it's at the heart of one of the things that's broken. We need to change trust law in the United States so these um, manipulations can't happen. But how do you do that when the Supreme Court has said that if billionaires want to own politicians, that's free speech, that's not corruption or bribery, and the billionaires don't want the trusts to go away? Yeah. No, I mean, we're obviously uh, you know up again. It's a heavy lift, as they say. But... First of all, the rest of the world now is going to be uh, kicking the U.S. rear on this topic because, you know, we've been going around saying, hey, you know, Guatemala, end your corruption. Hey, uh, Caribbean islands, stop being a tax haven. And now the U.S. is the tax haven. Right. Um, and so other countries are going to be saying to us, hey, you want to, you know, engage in a treaty with us uh, to get information from us? Well, clean up your house, clean up your act. Um, the other thing is that these this harm, this hidden wealth system, really harms people. It, you know, it's 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 the hospital that wasn't built. It's the tax dollars that weren't paid by the super rich. It's the coddling of the, you know, uh, criminals and kleptocrats t- who've stolen money from around the world and bringing it here to the U.S. So we're like the getaway car drivers, and it's fueling grotesque inequality. So it it it's harming the rest of society. Um, so there is a counter, you know, the possibility of really building that countervailing power. Um, you know, a year ago, Congress passed something called the Corporate Transparency Act that requires shell companies to disclose who their real owners are to the Treasury Department. Well, that's a huge first step. Yeah. And we can follow that playbook and pass national laws that will shut down this hidden wealth industry. So what does uh, bipartisan support, seemingly, for all of this dynastic wealth, what does that say to you about the way political leadership is viewing the unfair and unequal tax system revealed by your report and analysis as well as that of the Pandora Papers? Are these revelations having an impact on the political leadership who the wealthiest families influence? Well, I think it just shows how wealth captures our democratic system. Uh, unfortunately, the Pandora Papers is going to turn up the heat in a lot of other places in the world, uh, you know, like Mexico, you and I were talking about, um, and other places where the politicians and the politi- political class are directly implicated. Unfortunately, here in the United States, um, you know, there are no politicians named, partly because, you know, the, the leaks came from offshore wealth services firms outside the U.S., if we had a couple of good leaks here in the United States where we saw how our own politicians were kind of in the tank helping protect this system, that might help our reform process. So, but still we should move ahead because this system really is harming the quality of life for everyone else in the country. So what do we miss in our understanding of how decisions are made at the very top of governance when we do not recognize the national impact of these family foundations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think part of it's understanding the the different ways in which wealthy families wield power, uh, that philanthropy is part of that, uh, that uh, direct campaign support and, and, you know, the ability of wealthy families to run and finance a campaign to get rid of the estate tax. Uh, that's, that's like as about as selfish interest as you can possibly take. 
Um, so yeah, it's just understanding that all the arenas in which the super wealthy uh, use their power to limit discussion or uh, and, and essentially block opportunities for everybody else. So the report states that the oversight role of the Internal Revenue Service has been decimated over the last few decades, particularly in its ability to monitor complex trust and tax loopholes. And this is all discussed on the front page of today's New York Times about what we're going to do about the IRS, because uh, Joe Biden wants the President Biden wants IRS to have more access to certain information from banks and the banking industry is trying to stop it. How can the image of the tax man be in any way rehabilitated as a means of fighting inequality? Because apparently, according to the Times, the banking industry is going to be running out all these ads in the very near future to make certain that the IRS doesn't have any increased or expanded power. So how can the image of the tax man in any way be rehabilitated? Well, one is just to realize that, uh, for, first of all, there should be a very clear function at the IRS, which is to watch the financial shell games of the richest one-tenth of one percent, you know, people with $10 million or more, because that's where a huge amount of the corruption comes from. And that's where the expertise has been lost. So there's been this whole campaign against the IRS. And frankly, the IRS is, you know, hasn't helped themselves because they, you're more likely to be audited for using the earned income credit than you are if you're using some exotic trust. And that's partly because the IRS's oversight ability to, to monitor the rich has been decimated. You, you need a certain expertise to follow the money. Uh, and it doesn't help when, when the Biden administration proposes things like, well, we're going to monitor $600 transactions from banks and require reporting on that. It's like, no, we, we don't really care about that. What we should really care about are you know, $600 million transactions and, you know, $600,000 transactions even, but, you know, uh, leave the little people alone. That's not where the, 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 the true crimes are happening. Uh, and the Irish should be seen as an oversight body that defends society against uh, the power of the wealthy and, uh, and make sure they pay their fair share. Why that low $600 amount? Do you think that was an attempt to get bipartisanism behind it? I don't see how it could get anybody behind it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a, whatever, a, a, a judgment, a policy mistake, you know, just in the same way President Biden said, look, I'm, we're going to pay for all this, you know, pandemic relief and, and infrastructure and no one with income over $400,000 is going to pay any more taxes. Well, they, we should be talking the same about enforcement. Uh, you know, the IRS already enforces existing tax laws on working folks. It's the super rich that are getting away with, with a heist here. So I think the, the, it has to be better targeted to win popular support.
We've just heard clips today starting with On the Media explaining the reporting behind the Pandora Papers. Fresh Air, in two parts, described the winners and losers of offshore tax havens. Planet Money went through the process of establishing a shell corporation in the U.S. just to show how easy it is. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the prospects for a global minimum tax agreement. This is Hell, in two parts, explained dynastic wealth accumulation in the U.S. and the bipartisan support for the corruption that allows that system to just continue to roll along. And the Tom Hartman program looked at South Dakota, the capital of immortal financial trusts. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips discussing one of my favorite financial topics, philanthropy, with Pitchfork Economics highlighting that plutocrats have all seemingly gotten on board with making the world a better place, but just don't seem to be able to understand their role in causing so many of our problems. Is the theory of change being proposed here one in which we can empower those below by in no way threatening the wealth and power of those on top, win-win? Or is the theory of change at work by this person or this organization that the only way to do right by those in the bottom is to crimp the power and wealth of those on top? That is a fundamental dividing line in how you see America today. And This Is Hell explained how the structures of philanthropy are being used to influence politics and avoid taxation indefinitely. What wealthy people do is they park the money in their own private foundations and donor-advised funds and tend to warehouse it. You know, and they immediately get a tax break when they put their money into the charitable institution. And foundations are only required to pay out 5% a year, and that can include overhead, right? So that can include paying my kid to work at the office or whatever. So the money's not really flowing. It's being warehoused. You have these billionaires who are saying, oh, I'm creating you know, my foundation in my image, and I'm putting all my billions into it. And that means that money will never be taxed, ever. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we would normally be hearing from you, but I'm skipping voicemails and messages today to talk about something completely unrelated and different. If you would like to leave a message to be played on a future show, please do. You can always call and record a message at 202-999-3991, or simply write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. Today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about mental health, because I think that it's approximately two years, almost exactly, since I talked on the show about my seasonal depression. But the reason I did that a couple of years ago is because at the time, I could not think of anything else to talk about. I I was in the middle of a particularly strong wave of numbness and depression and crying over nothing in particular when I was trying to sit down and record some final comments just like these. And I thought, I cannot possibly muster the energy to think of anything to say other than how I'm feeling right now. And people responded very nicely to that, not not just with positive thoughts and feelings being sent my way, but also sort of mirroring or you know echoing those feelings that they 
also experience either generally or during different seasons when it gets dark and gray or, or even the reverse. You know, some people said that they start to feel down in the summertime, which I hadn't even been aware of until people told me. So that was a couple of years ago. And I don't know that I've talked about it much, if at all, since then. So I thought maybe I'd give a little bit of an update because the last couple of years have actually been going okay. I haven't been experiencing those same sort of fall depression feelings, even in 2020, when I think that I had all the right in the world to be feeling down about the state of the world or the grayness outside my window or whatever else. And so I can just speak from my own experience, but tied in with a little bit of what I have heard from others and the experience uh, that others have is I think I have a pretty good sense of the changes that were made that actually made a difference in how I felt. So the, the first is that it was in 2020 when a bunch of new people joined the show. And I don't mean listeners. I mean, I think initially we started doing transcripts. And so we ended up with three volunteer transcriptionists. Ben, Ken, and Scott. Well, it wasn't Scott at the time. He joined later. But in addition to them helping with transcripts, we also have like a little chat room, you know, a little text thread that that we chat on uh, behind the scenes. And then very shortly after they started, the two producers, whose names you know, Aaron and Dion, started on the show to help with research and, and sort of those back-end production elements of the show. But again, they joined on the behind the scenes chat. And, you know, I, I chat with them, you know, at least once a week to check up on our, you know, research for coming episodes. And I got to be honest, I don't know, is it half? Is it two thirds of the time that I spend talking with them on the phone? That is just sort of having fun and joking around and bullshitting with each other? Probably. It is probably somewhere in that range. And, and so those additional social interactions beyond, you know, your normal friend group. Like I got, I got friends who I've had for years, but as with so many people, you know, I, I chat with them. Uh, well, let's just say way less than I wish I did, but the benefits of having a group that's tied to the show means that we sort of chat all the time and we talk about politics on the text thread and, and all of that. And, and so those extra, Social interactions, I think, have been really helpful for us. And then the second major element, and, and I really do think that this is a major element, is projects, side projects, be it hobby, be it productive or unproductive, something you just like to do or, or whatever. I think that makes a huge difference. And I have had what I think is a wrong impression of my relationship to side projects for years now. For a really long time, I thought that I did extra projects when I had the extra energy, and now I believe that I have the extra energy when I do the side projects. I think the side projects are literally a source of energy for me. The fact of having a side project gives motivation that would not have been there otherwise, and that motivation is a source of energy for me, and I think particularly last year in 2020, when, as I said, I think I had all the right in the world to feel down and glum about 
the state of the world and the grayness outside my window, I had side projects that I was working on that kept me motivated and energized or maybe just distracted enough that my mood never really dipped. It, it, I, I never felt those telltale signs of seasonal affective disorder, the, the feelings of being down, the feelings of uh, being sort of numb to the world that I have gotten so used to year after year after year, you know, maybe, maybe not every year, but most years, those feelings come around at about this time of year. Last year, they did not show up at all. This year, so far, so good. We'll see how things go, but can only speak for myself, as I said, and your mileage may vary. But those changes to the state of my world, I think, are a big part of it. So to the degree that you think that's good enough advice to try on your own, give it a shot. More social interactions, side projects, give it a try. That is my mental health update. I'm, I'm very glad to be able to say that things have been better recently, and I certainly hope that everyone else is doing at least okay. <laughs> I hope you've been uh, doing better or, or taking whatever steps that you can think to take to make the world feel okay and to uh, and to get through these seasons if if uh, if the seasons do have a particular impact on you or to get whatever help you need to help you through it. As always, I would love to hear your comments on this or anything else. You can always leave us a message at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to that entire group of people for being an enjoyable bunch of folks to hang out with, even if just digitally. And thanks, as always, to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and occasional bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership, as always, is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in which you can hear Amanda, Aaron, Dion, and myself all getting along quite splendidly and talking about politics in, uh, in an amusing way, we think. And membership is also how you get extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com